We'll dismiss our children to children's ministry, and if you'll open your Bibles to James chapter 4. We're continuing in our series in Acts 2, but as you know, we're progressing through in verse 42 of Acts 2, a list of activities to which the new believers in Jesus became devoted. And we spent the last three weeks looking at the, the, the practice to which they were devoted, referred to in the text as the apostles' teaching. And today, we're going to begin examining the second activity which they devoted themselves to, and that is the activity of fellowship. Now, let's start by defining fellowship. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia, and that can often and helpfully be translated simply as sharing. And that's the way that I'll, uh, that's the theme I'll explore this week and probably next. There are other elements that you could talk about when we're discussing fellowship, but the concept of sharing is key. In Philemon 6, it says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. And the word koinonia in Philemon 6 appears as the word sharing. In 2 Corinthians 9.13, Paul's speaking to the Corinthian church about an offering he's taking up to care for the believers in Jerusalem who are experiencing a famine. And in that passage, he uses the word koinonia as contribution, or some versions just translated as gift or sharing. So, key to the concept of fellowship is the concept of giving and receiving, of sharing things in common. So, before I proceed, I just want to, when I can honor uh, our ancestors, our, our, our spiritual ancestors in an appropriate way, I want to do that. And so, I, I want to say that, that our Baptist ancestors did not simply pull the concept of potluck out of thin air. And that I think, at the more I've studied this concept, I could say that as, an, as a maxim, we could say that with many crockpots comes great godliness. Like, like we could say that, that's, that there's an actual biblical connection to that. In fact, later on in Acts 2, uh, this, this uh, sharing element of fellowship is brought forward in verse 44, where it says, all who believed were together, and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. See how fellowship and sharing are just kind of closely related. I would say more than closely related, they're kind of the same thing. First uh, Peter 4.10, just so we're not stuck on the concept of sharing as sharing physical needs only, First Peter 4.10 says, as each of us has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as God's stewards of varied graces. So, so it's not simply the idea of sharing physical needs. It's really the idea of engaging in a community that is sharing every grace that God has bestowed upon us. Now, let me show you this connection between sharing and fellowship in a different way. I'm going to take you to two passages in the New Testament that are anti-fellowship. They're, they're passages that describe broken fellowship. And I want you to hear how within the broken fellowship is a broken sharing. So one of the classic examples of broken fellowship is in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is addressing, well, he's scolding the Corinthian church for their awful practice of the Lord's table. In verse 20, he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead and with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? 
Do you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you with this? No, I will not. So you can hear there's broken fellowship happening. And that broken fellowship has to do with a lack of sharing. And another great text that displays broken fellowship is James 4. And this is going to be our main text for today. James 4, verses 1 through 3. James writes, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Again, we'll break that down more, but you can see the link between desires, unmet needs, broken fellowship, and so forth. So let me just give you like a thesis statement today because we're going to cover a lot of ground. And I want to make sure that this is sort of held forward both for this week and for next week. Today we're going to explore that passage, James 4. And we're going to talk about a necessary precursor to sharing that I almost I hear almost nothing about. And, and it's, it's too bad because it's one of the things we're the worst at. And, and that is a necessary, for precursor, a necessary precursor for sharing is asking. And, and we're not good at asking, are we? We're not, we're not good at asking God, and we're definitely not good at asking others. And, and we're not good at asking God in prayer. We're not, we're not good at asking people. And uh, that needs to change. Um, when it changes, fellowship improves dramatically. When the people of God become good at asking, fellowship changes dramatically. Next week, I'm going to talk about uh, the dramatic effect that this practice has had on my marriage. And, and also just kind of my interaction with the people of God over the last few years, but, but especially recently in my marriage. And so marriage is sort of, I think, the, um, the simplest unit of fellowship that you might be able to think about. It's just two people, right? But it's, it's fellowship. It's, and and this, this element of sharing is uh, intuitively grasped in marriage, but the element, well, maybe not, but definitely, definitely, been married 23 years, and the, the thing we've been the worst at is, isn't the sharing piece of it. It's been the asking piece of it and the communicating piece of it. And so I'll break that down even further next week. But let's go ahead and review this text again. And we're going, to, we're going to really stick on this idea of asking. But I'm going to show you kind of some other caveats and, and, and qualifiers that need to be introduced into it. Because it's simply, it's not as simple as going to someone and saying, I like your car, can I have it? Right? Uh, there, there's, a, there's a qualifier, there's a multiple qualifiers involved in asking. Though I don't want you to ever allow those qualifiers to distract you from the simple truth, and that is this. If you were to become a better asker, both of God and of people, your, the quality of your fellowship would improve. Uh, it would, in fact, dramatically heal some seriously broken fellowship. So again, to the text. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
Fights and quarrels come, well, fights and quarrels create broken fellowship, right? And this is occurring because people aren't getting what they want. And before you jump to the question of whether they should want what they want, just hold on a second. That's not a simple issue. It's not a simple answer to that question, always. We're going to get there, but don't, don't dismiss all the work we have to do to get there. Fights and quarrels lead to broken fellowship, and that is occurring because people are not getting what they want. And let's start here. James is taking these fights and quarrels very seriously. He's calling them murderous. He's calling them murderous. Now, I think it's helpful to think about, well, what kind of murder are we talking about here? You know, I think there's two different kinds of fights and quarrels that most of us have encountered. And the first one is sort of like the end of a mob movie, you know, a gunfight in a restaurant, you know, pasta sauce and blood and lots of people, lots of violence, you know, broken plates, the whole deal. Like, so there's a fight and quarrel that is just this terrifically violent interchange between two people, usually verbal, usually quite hurtful. But some of us just don't, don't do that. And that's not because we're more godly. Some of us have a different way of murdering. We, do the, we, go, we like to do the arsenic poison route, you know, the small doses of resentment building up over time. So some of us, some of us are, the, are the gunslingers, and some of us are the dropping a little bit of, uh, of arsenic into our husband's Wheaties every morning kind of thing. There are different kinds of murderers, and there are different kinds of fights and quarrels, but they're all seen rightly in what we saw last week as Jesus discussed in Matthew 5. This sort of inner hatred of the brother is murder. This fight and quarrel may be a hot war or it may be a cold war, and honestly, if it's a cold war, uh, some of the some of the the problems with the Cold War is, is that you're just storing information and resentment, and then the dam bursts one day. And it may be if you had had 20 fights rather than one big one, things would have been better. Fights and quarrels are broken fellowship. Broken fellowship occurs because desires are denied. And murder is what is described to be the central idea of a fight and quarrel. And murder is sort of anti-sharing, right? Think about it. Murder is anti-sharing. Instead of giving and receiving, instead of sharing, there's taking. Murder is the ultimate taking. So let's talk, before we talk about how to fix this, let's make sure we're clear on a couple of things. And this is huge. It is the position of most, including myself, that James in this passage is not simply describing why these people were fighting and quarreling, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is explaining the source of all fighting and quarreling. So this is not James pastorally inserting himself into a particular context, knowing that these individuals are fighting and quarreling because of unmet needs, but rather, this is to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, your simple answer when you ask yourself, why am I in broken fellowship? Why do I fight and quarrel? Either in a hot war kind of way, or in a cold war kind of way. We can skip the why question. When fights and quarrels occur, we can skip the why question. This is a big deal. We don't have to ask, why am I fighting and quarreling? Why is my fellowship broken? We can know. The answer is, is that somehow, 
desires are foment, our desires are sort of swirling beneath the surface and they're being threatened or they're not being met and so on and so forth. And the reason for these desires not being met is complicated. This text is somewhat complicated. There appears to be a lot of overlap between possibilities. I mean, when he uses the phrase, uh, uh, passions which wage war within you, the, the idea there is almost this sense of contradictory passions. And my goodness, we all have that. Like, like I, want to, um, I, I want to lose weight and I also want to have, you know, a bowl of Lucky Charms before bed, you know. That's true shalom, by the way. Nice big bowl of cereal before bed. I can't do that, but that's, that's the promised land. <laughs> That'll be one of my, uh, I don't have a bucket list, but I have a resurrection list, and that one's on it. Perfect body, lucky charms. Whole milk. So, so, so one of the possibilities is that, 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 that the reason the desires aren't being met is that they're contradictory and simply cannot be met. I can't have both those things. Um, and another possibility is, is that there's a, a heart of covetousness behind the desire, and that covetousness is poisoning everything. It says you covet and cannot obtain. Another possibility is, is that the desire hasn't been communicated. He says you have not because you ask not. And then another possible reason for the, desire, for, for, for the desire threatened or unmet is because it's simply in competition with Christ's work in my life. It's an adulterous pleasure. So, I mean, there's a lot of overlap there, but, but that'll do. As we begin to discuss, it'll have to do. That's all I've got here. But, uh, but, but there's a lot of overlap and a lot of complication as to the question of what do I desire and why is it not happening? Or what do I desire and why do I feel threatened? by this other person or this other circumstance. Now, in a moment, I'm going to spend most of my time talking about one part of the passage in particular, and that is you have not because you ask not. But I've got to do a lot of clarifications and qualifiers to get there. I'm going to conclude in a moment that the best way forward when fights and quarrels emerge is to ask, is to identify the desire and need and to ask but man, there's a lot of complicated work to get to before we get there. Because nearly everything in this passage says that the problem of unfulfilled desires has more to do with the quality of the desire than the clarity of your request. Everything, so, every, so what I'm saying is, I'm going to talk about asking, but almost all of the weight in this passage is pushing toward, it's not really about the clarity of your request. It's about the, it's about the problem, the brokenness of your desires. The word passions used in this text, it's not a neutral word. It's not like, you know, like uh, kite surfing is my passion. You know, like it's not that kind of a thing. It's passion used in the New Testament is almost something we're supposed to put to death. You know, it's something we're supposed to fight against. So the word passion is not a neutral word. Obviously, waging war within you, that doesn't sound good. Coveting, obviously a negative word. And passions, again, used in verse 3 used again in a negative fashion. So this is important. The largest reason for broken fellowship is broken desires. It is not mostly because someone is denying you something you want. It is mostly because of broken desires. Now, that is very different than the world's explanation for relational conflict. 
So when the Bible tries to explain, succeeds by the way, explain why the world is broken and why there's so much relational pain, it says that broken desires are mostly the problem, not unspoken desires or unmet needs. I'm going to talk about something I'm calling the therapeutic model, but I want to make sure you understand that when I mean the therapeutic model, I mean the way you have been trained to think since you were a child. I'm not talking about people who go to therapy. I'm talking about a particular way of addressing needs that it came well before you, but everyone here, no matter how old you are or how homeschooled you were, have been completely and thoroughly indoctrinated in a particularly sinful, worldly way of addressing your unmet needs. I'm going to use the phrase therapeutic model, but I mean a lot of things behind that phrase. The world says that the main problem with our unmet needs is the other. And perhaps that we haven't actually asked well. And I'll get to all that more in a moment. The world says, so Karl Marx would say, that the main problem with our unmet needs is a scarcity of resources. And, and, that, and that there's only so much of this thing to go around. And so the problem is, is we've got to create some sort of, you know, cultural equilibrium while everybody mutually suffers from lack together. Um, but the Bible tells a different story. The Bible's explanation for the broken world is broken desires. Now, broken desires lead to scarcity. I mean, the curse, the curse creates scarcity of resources. That's true. But the main thing the Bible says is causing broken relationships is that our desires are all busted up as a result of indwelling sin. That's the root the Bible says. That's where all the pain springs up. Not because others are withholding things from us. Not because we haven't clarified our desires. But mostly because our desires are broken. Now, this is very different from the way we have been raised to think by our culture. The typical therapeutic model dealing with conflict and broken relationships. So if you go to a Christian counselor or a non-Christian counselor, they're all going to be operating more or less from some, some basic tools that they kind of have in common. And mostly what they're going to do is they're going to help you identify what you're not getting and help you to get it. But what they're not going to be able to do is help you sort out whether what you want is what you should want. They're not going to be able to help you clean up your desire because a lot of our desires are sick. Some of our desires need to be shot and left for dead. But a lot of our desires kind of have leprosy and they need to be healed by Jesus. But there's something there that's true and good and right. It just needs to be rightly ordered and so on and so forth. And if you go to the average place in the world, and I'm just saying therapy as kind of a stand-in for everything else, they will lack any kind of moral matrix with which to hold up your desire against it and say, is this a good desire? Is this, is this a worthy desire? Is this a helpful desire? So on and so forth. Every one, of, every one of these voices that we would hear from the world have been trained to say, more or less, that because it is a desire, it is sacrosanct. It is good. And more than that, We've been trained to say, like, I'm not going to judge your desires. I'm simply going to be an amoral sounding board for your desires. 
But everything we're going to get from the world is mostly about attending to what we want, helping us to define it, and then helping us to go out there and get it in whatever um, pragmatic tools we might need, with, what, with, with whatever pragmatic tools we might need. Now, I've just poo-pooed therapeutic, the therapeutic model. I've just said, like, the main problem isn't asking. The main problem isn't identifying. The main problem isn't communicating those desires to people. But it's kind of funny because the Bible prescribes something that's, like, really close to what I just said wasn't good. Okay? Turns out that the Bible's primary tool for assessing the goodness of your desires and adjusting the goodness of your desires is asking God. Now, we could trace all this if we wanted to go all geeky worldview. We could trace all that this back to some enlightenment shifts that happened when we made God uh, go away and go back to making clocks. You know, like just if you exist, just go away. Uh, do your God stuff. And we, we put man in the place of God. So, so secular humanism, man is God. So now suddenly the therapeutic model makes sense. It's just a perversion of the biblical model. In the biblical model, we're supposed to ask God for our stuff. But what if we are God? And what if the other is God? Well, we lose the ability to simply, well, we, we lose the imperative to sort out whether our desires are good or not because we're God, right? And we also create an urgency for the other because they're God too. And they've got to make me happy. So the Bible says you should assess your desires. You should refine them. But you should do that by going to God first and foremost. Now, let's just review where we're at. Because this is, this is getting complicated. And I want you to hang on as we work through this. And again, this is a two-week sermon. I won't do it all starting now. You'll get a break of a week. Um. But let's just review. Broken fellowship. What does James says causes broken fellowship? Desires denied or threatened. Those, desire, those desires denied or threatened happen. Why? Well, mostly because the desires themselves are broken in various ways, but also because the desires have not been communicated. You have not because you asked not. And the biblical way to fix both of those problems, the problem of broken desires... And the problem of not asking is asking, is to go to God with your desires. Now, one thing I want to make sure is clear. We are not Buddhists. And therefore, we do not believe the road to enlightenment is to just not have any desires. We're not Stoics. And therefore, we believe that the road to redemption doesn't mean suppressing desire for the suppression's sake. We believe that desires are meant to be fodder for communication with God. And that means they matter. It doesn't mean they're ultimate. It doesn't mean that they, we, we, we demand. But it means that through our desires, God is inviting us into a conversation with him. So the, the biggest sticking point in all of this is that broken desires almost always lead to broken asking. So that's why James says, you have not because you ask not. And then he says, you ask and do not receive because you want to spend it on your adulterous pleasures. So we're going to talk about how to ask God 
and not just God for our needs. And I want to make that clear too. This is not, this is not a call to taking what you need and desire only to the Lord and leaving it there and never going to your brothers and sisters or your spouse and communicating directly with them about your needs and desires. That would be a wimpy way out. There's a certain kind of person that distance themselves, distances themselves from fellowship because they are eager to meet other people's needs, but they hold their own needs very close to the vest. And they think they're cooperating and participating in community, but they're not because everyone else as they interact with them suddenly eventually realizes, okay, this person's happy to meet my needs, but I never hear about their needs. I never hear about what, what, what they desire. And then you begin to realize, oh, okay, well, I, I, this is probably not a person I can trust because they're not trusting me. They're not, they're not laying themselves on the table. They're happy to help me when I'm a mess, but I don't really ever hear about when they're a mess. So we are called not only to go to God, but also to others. And what we're going to do today is talk about how that works. So what I've done and this may or may not work. It may or not be helpful. I'm thankful for a lot of opportunities to at least preach one good sermon in my lifetime. But, uh, but what I've done is I've created a series of slides, and I want to walk you through the way the world approaches this issue and the way that God approaches this issue. And hopefully at the end of this, you're going to have more clarity about where you are and where you need to be. All right. So first of all, um, let me just show you the, the basic world's therapeutic model. Okay. That's really small. I'm sorry. But but uh, this, is, this is essentially the way that you have been taught just, just in culture. Remember I said like Netflix and chill isn't Netflix and chill. It's a classroom. Like we're being taught all the time through everything we do. And, uh, and, and so here we go. This is the basic therapeutic model. Step one is, is that you're going to uh, be encouraged to define the desire through talk therapy. Now, if you're actually going to a therapist, that's going to be literally called talk therapy or something like it. Um, and in that case, the therapist is sort of an amoral sounding board. Now, you're also uh, potentially not going to therapy, uh, and you're just journaling, or you're just letting your thoughts wander as you drive to work. The basic idea is, is that this, this first step in the worldly, non-biblical model is to define my desire. But there's no moral checking that's going on there. Step two is you're encouraged to approach the other. And the other may be a spouse or a parent or a friend, or it may even be self, depending on how the therapist wants to proceed. And then step three, you're told to ask for the thing you desire. And then this depends on some, some, some various schools of thought. So you may have, you may have a voice, a, a self-help book or a therapist or a TV show that tells you the best way forward is to demand your desire and hold your ground and say, you must meet my need. Sometimes you'll hear that. Sometimes you'll hear, uh, well, you just should discuss your desire and arrive with the other person at some sort of reasonable understanding. And, and then a lot of times what you'll hear from both Christians and non-Christians is uh, that, that our desires are all like a swap meet kind of thing and that, that, that the community is a swap meet. And so we should do desire diplomacy and we should go to our spouse and say, I want these three things. What three things do you want and how can we agree to meet, meet our needs together? So there's this sort of asset swapping. It's very transactional. This is, I mean, literally, like, I wouldn't have to, like, 
put this up here. This is what we would do naturally. This is what Americans would do naturally if we were dealing with our needs and desires, uh, whether in community and in a church or in marriage. Now, let's look at the biblical model. So uh, the first one step would be, again, similar. We define our desire through prayer, scripture, and godly friends. And in that first stage where we're defining our desire, the Holy Spirit and Scripture work together to become a moral sounding board. So when we say stupid things, it kind of it touches something. You know, when we say, I, I just wish my wife would do whatever I ask her to do. And you, you know, you get the, the, the taze from the Holy Spirit deep in your heart. You're like, that was stupid. Why did I say that? Step two, approach the Father. And we're taught how to approach the Father. And next week we'll look more uh, clearly at this. But we're, we're given all these uh, precepts about how to approach the Father. So we know that one of the things we should do when we approach the Father is we should say, hallowed be your name. I don't, I don't, I don't want my name to be hallowed. I don't want this thing. I don't want to want this thing because it's an idol. Lord, is it an idol? Am I asking this because it's good for my soul or... And because it's good for your name or, or not. Of course, we're, we're taught to ask in gratitude and thanksgiving. And so as we approach the Father with this desire, and maybe we haven't fully defined it even yet, we're, we're, we're saying thank you, God, for your faithfulness and kindness. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for, for his shed blood, for the remission of our sins. We're asking questions about contentment. You know, Lord, is this a contentment problem? Do I have a contentment problem? Uh, am I content in you? And, of course, when we ask God for anything, he's just, it's like he insists. Well, one of the things we're going to do in this is we're going to teach a little patience. So God works on a different timeline. And, uh, and so when we ask God, we're given this, we're, we're, we're invited into this, this skill of learning patience. Well, uh, we approach the Father, we ask the Father, step two and step three are kind of the same and, and we say certain things that, that are important, and we, we, we want to mean them. And one of them is, not my will, but thy will be done. And we pray for the other person who might have what we need or what we desire. And we thank God for them, and we, we celebrate the gift they are to us in our life. And we, we pray that there are ways that maybe we could serve them and ask the Lord to help us to see that, not in a transactional way, but just because that's what we're called to do. We're called to, to give and to receive. And then step four, if there is an other, sometimes there's not, but if there is an other who has the ability to help us with our need or desire, we go to them. We go to the spouse, we go to the parent, we go to the church, and we ask for our needs. But something very different has taken place in this model versus the other model. So go to the next slide, if you would. All right, so let me walk you through the differences. The difference between uh, step one and the non-biblical and biblical model, you can see them there. In the non-biblical model, we're mostly just trying to define our desire. The therapist is an amoral sounding board. In the biblical model, we're trying to define the desire with what the Bible says about the desire. And we're, helping our, we're asking our friends to help us to think through this. And we're looking through the scriptures and we're praying about it. And the Holy Spirit, in the biblical model, is a moral sounding board. Already we're seeing, look to the far right, we're seeing the refinement of our broken desires take place simply by going to God. But on the non-biblical model, we're seeing that our, 
our, our, our broken desires are being reinforced. Because the first time you say, all I want is my wife to listen to me, and the therapist says, like, okay. That's validated, right? My broken desire is being validated. It's being reinforced. So let's go to step two. And it's really kind of more of the same. Uh, right away, before asking God or anything like that, we're told, go to the other person. Go to the spouse. Go to the parent. Go to the friend. Now, what happens here is that we will probably begin our slow path to resentment because our broken desires are always asked in broken ways. And we'll flesh this out more next week. But because the person is ultimate in this non-biblical story and the person doesn't have infinite resources, patience, or even love for us, if we're trusting or hoping that they're going to meet our need, ultimately, we will begin to resent them. But when we approach the Father, we see all these questions that we're kind of trained to ask in prayer, and more refinement of broken desires occurs. Step three and step four. Again, more of the same. When we go and we demand or discuss or we do desire diplomacy with the other, we're just reinforcing broken desires. At this point, they've become virtual rights, and the other person is robbing us of our rights. But when we go to the Father first, and we say things like, not my will, but thy will be done, and we pray for the other, and we look for ways to serve the other, and then we approach the other, well, all that time, those desires are being refined. They're being cleaned up. Some of them are being killed. And some of them are being cleaned up. And most importantly, by the time we actually get to the other, We've been enrolled in this school of patience and gratitude and clarity so that when we go to the other, we have a different way of talking about our desires. And, and one of the different ways we have talking about our desires is, I don't need you to make me happy. I'm not putting a gun to your head and saying, satisfy my soul or else. Give me peace or else. But I am saying, you know, I would appreciate it if you could do this for me or that for me. It would be nice or it would be helpful. But I'm not going to ask you in a way that is manipulative. I'm not going to say if you loved me, you would do X. It's just simply not true. I don't have the authority to define love at that level of granularity. Like if you would love me, you would make me fried chicken. Like that's just not in the Bible. Right? Like, that's just that level of granularity. That's, that's, that's that level of specificity. It's just, it's just not there. And you know what you're doing when you do that? When you make these, these very clear, like, you must do this if you love me. You're falling into the non-biblical model where you are God. And you get to define the terms of what love looks like. And you get to define the timeline. And you get to say, I've expressed this need. And if you love me, you'll do it and you'll do it now. And we strip all the freedom away from the other person. And we strip any good reason for them to do this good thing. Because now we've cornered them in and we've said, by guilt or manipulation or drama, we've essentially given them, we've taken away all the good reasons why they might want to help us. And we forced them into a corner and said, you've got to do it because 
you got to do it because I am Yahweh. Right? So the two models, though they sound the same, are quite different. And what I think you've really got, and this is a kind of a historical nerdery moment, like I think what you've really got is you've got the original biblical way of dealing with needs and desires twisted in post-enlightenment thinking by the removal of God and the entrance of man into the place of God. And that's where we all are. Like, that's our culture. That's, that's the way we think. So let me show you Jesus doing it right. Look at Luke chapter 22. Uh, verses 39 through 46 is the story I'll be recounting. This is Jesus in the garden. Jesus asked his disciples to come and pray with him in the garden. This should be real, one big aside point here. Uh, leadership involves asking people to do things. Like, that's just part of it. Leadership doesn't mean you doing it all. Leadership means asking people to do things. There's, a, there's one of the ways that leaders must lead us is by being good at asking. Not asking in manipulative ways, not, not asking in guilt-driven ways, but leaders must lead us by being good at asking. And so, fathers, husbands, this is something you can show. Neighbors, my brother, pretty clever, whenever a new neighbor moves in in his neighborhood and he wants to get to know them and share the gospel with them, he goes and asks them for something. A cup of sugar, a tool, so on and so forth. Because he's putting himself in a completely different position that winds up working quite well. So Jesus asked his disciples to come and pray with him in the garden. Now, here's what's going on. Everybody, including Jesus, but also the disciples themselves, are about to enter a time of testing, right? Everybody involved in this story is about to enter a time of testing. And the test is not the same proportionately, of course. But Jesus is about to endure this tremendous trial. But the disciples are also kind of about to endure the kind of mini version of the same trial. Their lives will be threatened too. Their reputations will be threatened as well. And the next day, as all of this unfolds, the disciples will be tested. Jesus wants the disciples to enter into a conversation with God both for him, but also for themselves. So he says in this passage, come with me and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What's, what are we talking about here? Come, come with me to pray that your fellowship with God may not be broken by disordered desires. See, everybody involved in this story has the same basic desires. Everybody, including Jesus, has at some level a desire to be free of pain. Everybody, including Jesus, has at some level a desire to live. And everybody also in this story, especially Jesus, loves God. So everybody in the garden has the common set of desires. And some of them don't work together. Some of them are contradictory. Everybody wants to live and everybody wants to obey God. The desires are, are in contradiction in this particular moment. Now, Jesus, as the perfect one, is aware of this desire to live. So he brings it to the Father. He brings his desire to the Father. The disciples are not aware of this desire. It's there. They're just not seeing it or talking about it. It isn't pressing on them. 
and they don't realize how much of a motivating factor their desire to live will be when the testing comes. So, so Jesus is bringing a desire to the Father. The disciples are sleeping. They're not, they're not articulating the desire. They're not dealing with the testing that will come. They're not dealing with this moment when these two desires will appear contradictory. They're not, they're not thinking about those things at all. So Jesus enters into a conversation with the Father. The disciples sleep. And later, when the desires of the disciples to live, to have a good reputation, to be free, out of prison, when those desires slam up against the desire to honor Jesus, because they haven't talked to God about those desires at all, because they, they haven't spent any time sorting them out, any time refining them, any time ordering them, they're helpless. It is only the prayers of Jesus for them, in fact, that keep them from falling entirely away. But Jesus does the opposite. He does bring a desire to the Father so that it could be subordinated and ordered underneath a greater desire. And he says, Father, if you're willing, verse 42, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I don't want to do this. I would really prefer if there were another way. If there is another way, I'm bringing that desire to you. But there's something I desire more, and as I'm talking to you, it's being fortified and strengthened and clarified, and that is, I want your will to be done and not mine. So that when the testing comes for Jesus, which is a far greater test than the disciples would face, when the testing comes for Jesus, through a conversation, a necessary conversation in the garden, his desires are appropriately ordered, and he is able to remain in fellowship with the Father. The disciples, because they had not discussed their desire, because they had not brought these things that they needed, but they didn't even think about needing, because they had not brought all that to God, when their testing came, their desires were tossed salad. They were waging war within them so that they wanted to like stay with Jesus, but they also wanted to live. And they had not spent any time in the classroom of prayer asking the Father. And so when Peter has the opportunity where he must order those desires, he must act on one and deny the other, he denies Christ three times, but he still loves Jesus, and so he goes away and weeps bitterly. And as far as Peter's ability right now, he's in broken fellowship because his desires got away from him, and they got away from him because he hadn't spent time talking to God about them. Now, thankfully, the hero of the story, I mean, I'll just let Peter go run off for a minute. The hero of the story stays true. And he stays true because he was talking to God. And because he has stayed true, and what true meant for Jesus was to go to the cross and receive God's wrath, his eternal fierce wrath against our sins, poured out on his body. Because that was 
the choice because Jesus obeyed that desire that God had for him. We have been given access to the God of the universe and we've been given a special name with which to call him. And it's our covenantal name for God. And it is Father. That's what Jesus gave us. He gave us adoption of not only acceptance, not only affection from God, adoption into the family of God. This is this is so this is why that garden moment is so blessed. It's so beautiful. It's because what it bought in the end of the day was Jesus going to the cross and dying for our sins and bringing us into a relationship with the provider and creator of all things that starts with the sweet address, Father. And so that's the solution to fights and quarrels is to be good askers. And asking God does not, does not excuse us from asking others who have what we need or even what we would desire. Asking God does not excuse us from going to others with our needs or even our desires. But asking God heals our broken desires, puts them in their proper place teaches us patience in the asking, teaches us mercy and grace and kindness in the asking. So here's the application. When fights and quarrels occur, either of the hot or cold variety, either in violent speech or in quiet resentment, I will ask myself, why am I upset with this person? What desire do I have that is being threatened? I will go to God to help me define that desire. And then, not only to define it, but to clean it up. Put it in its proper place. And maybe sometimes the proper place is, God's like, yeah, just shoot that one dead. And other times, God will heal a desire that is terribly marred by sin. And he will remove disease from our desires like he removes leprosy or demons from people in the Bible. So I go to God with my desires. When I fights and quarrels are my sign that I'm not talking to God. I'm not, I'm not trusting the Father with my needs and trusting the Father with my needs starts with asking the Father, naming my needs, even the stupid ones, even the ones that kind of sorry you mentioned, you're embarrassed you mentioned after they come out of your mouth. It's all part of the process. When I go to God, I will do so with gratitude for what he has already provided me. And I will go with gratitude mostly for Christ and the gratitude for who he is for me. And I will affirm when I go to God that he comes first and that whatever it is I think I need or desire, it's only good for me if it makes much of him in my heart and not less of him. And I will learn patience there. And I will learn to ask sweetly without manipulation, but I will also learn to ask boldly without shame. And then after taking my asking classes in the father's school, 
If I need or desire something that someone else can help me with, I will go to that person. I will go to my spouse. I'll go to my brother or sister in Christ and I'll ask them to help me. But this time in the same attitudes I learned when I was asking God. And I will not rob them of their opportunity to share my burden or be a blessing. And I will not tempt myself to be resentful for giving them something, for for them withholding something that I haven't clearly asked for. Friends, uh, we'll get more into this next week, but God is omniscient and he requires you to speak your needs. What does that tell you about how you should deal with your needs as they relate to other people? If the omniscient God requires you to speak your needs, listen, you are not, sorry ladies, can I pick on you for a minute? You are not entitled to an omniscient spouse. The need to be known without expressing your need is one of those that needs to be shot. The need to be known with someone that's just got all of this magic intuition that reads your mind is usually self-indulgence and laziness. Learn to say what you mean. Say it kindly without manipulation, but say it boldly without shame. Say what you mean. Men, you only have like four needs. Are you, are you actually articulating them in a clear, patient, humble, I would say even humiliating kind of way? Or are you walking through life, spouses, are you walking through life resentful at the other for failing to meet a need you have not in any way clearly communicated and certainly not clearly communicated in the way that God would have you? Church members, if you need more fellowship, ask. If you need more accountability, ask. What will happen over time is is that you will have some clear idea, maybe, of your needs, and you will start resenting others for not meeting them when you have not even said clearly in a humble way, this is what I need. Could someone help me? So asking is key in so many levels. I learn all of these asking techniques because I when I go to the Father. But he doesn't want me to only apply those in my relationship with the Father. So that when the time comes, and I've, I've talked to the Lord about this, and uh, honestly, a lot of times it's going to happen where uh, I've been in a fight and quarrel, and I've, so I've already screwed up once, and, uh, and, and, and that's signaled to me that I haven't talked to the Lord appropriately about this. And so I go back and I talk to the Lord about this, and I enroll in this school, and I learn these things. And then I have to go back to the spouse that I've probably indicted or hurt or accused. Or here's the, here's, the, here's the total Chris deserves hell moment. I'm hurt, therefore you are a sinner. You know, I'm going to ascribe moral guilt to you because I'm not feeling good. Like, yeah, no. So fights and quarrels happen. They shouldn't, but they do. 
a lot of that will come with all sorts of terrible communication, terrible assumptions, terrible impatience, terrible manipulation. Fights and quarrels, tell me what? I have needs and desires that are not met. What do I do with needs and desires that are not met? I go to the Father. And I ask the way that I'm supposed to ask, and he tells me how to do that. And I spend time in that school. And I have to go back to that person. And of course, the leading thing in that is, I really screwed this up. I made you a God. I made myself a God. I, uh, everything about that was broken. But I do have this need, and I want to communicate it to you in a way that doesn't mean that doesn't doesn't insist that you meet it. Total freedom. I'm not going to ascribe guilt or moral blame to you if you don't. And I'm also not going to enforce some sort of deadline that says, you've got to do it by this time. I'm just telling you, this is what I need. Or maybe it's just, this is what I desire. But even in that asking, the whole time, my heart is elevated upward to the Father because I know ultimately this person is under the Father's control and that the Father will move in their heart to give me what I need or desire if he deems it wise and good and true. So that's why asking is a huge part of fellowship. It orders our desires. It articulates them so others can help us. But most of all, it's restores us with fellowship with God. And I could have skipped all of this and just said, when we get in fellowship with God, our fellowship with others works. You can, if you're listening online, you're going to really regret that. You could have just skipped ahead. I go to the person with gratitude. I go to the person with God-centeredness. It isn't their job to give me peace. I go with patience. These, this person is living on their own timeline that God is ordering, and I can't change that. I shouldn't want to. I go kindly without manipulation or guilt or ascribing guilt to them. I go boldly with clarity and simplicity and truthfulness. Look, this is what I'd like. But even in my horizontal asking, I have my heart aimed upward at the one who supplies all of my needs. And I will let God work in the other for me. I will not attempt to take the role of the Holy Spirit, but neither will I doubt God's willingness to turn the heart of the other in love and goodwill toward me. Let me pray.